We're going to read this morning from Zephaniah chapter 3 and verses 14 to 20. When William rang me during the week, uh, I had wondered whether he might give me a topic to preach on, but this is something that has been very much in my heart recently, and I thought I would love to share it with you. And uh, so we begin at Zephaniah 3 and verse 14 and read to the end of the chapter. Hear God's word. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The sorrows for the appointed feasts I will remove from you. They are a burden and a reproach to you. At that time I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. At that time I will gather you, and at that time I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, out of that word would you speak to us, bring us encouragement and hope, perhaps even a, 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 an encouragement to turn away from whatever is wrong in our lives and uh, to cleave unto you, our God and our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Zephaniah was a fourth-generation descendant of King Hezekiah, uh, and he prophesied during the reign of one of the youngest ever kings to come to power, King Josiah, who was made king when he was simply eight years of age. Josiah reigned from about 640 to 609 B.C. And like many Old Testament prophets, Zephaniah had to warn people who had drifted away from God of the consequences of their sin. So if you were to look at the whole book of Zephaniah, you'd discover three main themes. The first one is impending judgment on Judah. God is saying to his people through his prophet, that judgment is coming upon his own people. Judgment starts with God's people. Have you ever thought about that? that? That there's a need for us to examine our lives and to understand how we should be living because God's judgment starts at home. And then the second theme is judgment upon the nations, that God is not ignorant of what is going on in our world and of what happens between nation and nation, and his judgment comes upon the nations. And the third theme is the promise of restoration and hope. Uh, and that's particularly where I want to go this morning uh, and, and a lovely, lovely section of the Bible that we read earlier. The, the verses we read come in the middle of a section of prophecy about the future of Jerusalem. Zephaniah 3 verses 9 to 10 speaks of a people whose hearts will return to the Lord. We might say today that people would be converted and come to true faith in God, or true faith in our context in Jesus Christ. And then verses 11 to 14 speak of the spiritual renewal of the people. They will be, as verse 12 says, 
the meek and humble who trust in the name of the Lord. It's a picture of God's people, meekness and gentleness and humility, trusting not in ourselves, but in the name of the Lord. And so, Zephaniah brings this message of judgment that's coming, but also the promise of restoration and hope. I may have said this in a previous sermon, but when our children were young, uh, we got one of those massive fire guards. We had an open fire in the manse, and uh, we got one of those ones that covered the whole fireplace and bolted in two bolts, two at the top, two at the bottom, and uh, you really couldn't have uh, knocked it over. And we did that to protect our children. We, we had a toddler uh, or, and, a, and a, a baby that was crawling, and we didn't want our children to get hurt. Now, if I was able to think baby thinks and baby talk, I might say, my parents are spoiling my fun. There's a bright, shiny, flickering fire. I want to put my hand into the fire. My parents are spoiling my fun. But of course, we weren't. We were doing that to protect our children. And I think when we understand law from the Old Testament that some people today try to tell us is restrictive and very legalistic and not really very healthy. It is like God is giving us a big fire guard, and He puts around our lives the fire guard of the Ten Commandments, the law of God, and He says, these things are here not to spoil your fun, but to give you protection and to give you guidance for life. And when we understand that God's law is something for our protection, we begin to have a better appreciation of the necessity of it. But the other thing that strikes me is this, that the imposition of law in the Old Testament and the number of times that God pronounced judgment for the breaking of that law reminds us that we live in a moral universe. We've just been praying for our politicians. Uh, and we understand the, the sensitivities and the difficulties around legacy issues, as they're called. And yet, one of the great things about understanding Scripture is it tells us we live in a moral universe where wrong will be punished and right and righteousness will be rewarded. We may not always see righteousness rewarded in this world. We may not always see justice uh, performed or, uh, uh, or given in this world, but God has said that we live in a moral universe where sin will not go unpunished, sin will not go unnoticed, and where God will step in and judge those who have sinned and not repented, not turned away from their sin. And so, I think this is a real important part of understanding the Scriptures, that God has said, you must take note of how you've broken the law, how you've sinned, and you must turn away from that which is wrong and turn back to me. And the promise that Zephaniah held out to the people he was speaking to was a wonderful promise of restoration and hope. In 2008, I discovered I was a card. Uh, we had just uh, completed our new building in Orangefield, where I was the minister at the time. Uh, we had spent so much money on the building, and it was all just pristine. We spent July of 2008 moving into the offices and the rooms and everything, and getting the cafe set up and so forth. Uh, and the committee, bless their hearts, had made an edict. No one 
We'll put sellotape or blue tack on the walls of our pristinely uh, made building. Uh, and if you want to put something on the wall, we'll provide notice boards. Uh, and uh, so nobody was to do anything to the walls. Well, anyway, I walked into the youth room. We had a lovely youth room, uh, circular, uh, uh, and uh, views up to the Castlereagh Hills and down the road. And I just thought I'd go in and see what's happening. A lot of our teenagers were there. Uh, and I, I looked and I thought, whoo, they'd drawn a pencil outline of a tree and a pencil outline of Zephaniah 3 and the second part of verse 17 all around the whole youth room that the committee had said should not have anything put on the walls. What did I do that discovered I was a card? I said, what are you doing? And they said, well, you told it was our youth room, so we're just decorating it. Uh, and I said, well, fine, carry on. And I walked out and didn't say anything. Committee, bless their hearts, uh, were actually quite delighted at the end that the young people had done that. But they had put out this uh, second part of 7 I 3.17, and I look forward to dealing with that uh, this morning. But a couple of things before we, we come to that. You know the old Murphy's Law, whenever there's light at the end of the tunnel, it's an oncoming train. Well, with God, there's never an oncoming train at the end of a tunnel of light. God is about giving people hope. And there were instructions given to the people that Zephaniah was writing to or speaking to, and there were threefold. Number one, sing, O daughter of Zion. Uh, it was the first instruction. Uh, and uh, Zion was the city of David. David had been Israel's golden king. He was the one that everybody looked to and said, those were the good old days when David was in charge, uh, in spite of a lot of bad things that happened. Uh, and yet there was always a hope in the Scriptures that a king greater than David would come. The, the person that the Old Testament looked forward to as the Messiah, and he would be Israel's greater king a king of kings, a lord of lords, uh, and one that the whole Old Testament looked forward to coming. And so Zephaniah says to the people that they are to sing uh, uh, and to praise God because a king is coming and better days are ahead. And he says in verse 17, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. Uh, and so there's a sense in which that means not just saving people from their enemies and difficulties, but saving people in terms of faith. And that salvation theme carries on right through into the New Testament, into the preaching of the church today. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, the angel Gabriel speaks to Joseph, and he says of Mary, she will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, or Yeshua, means Savior. And the angel said to Mary, when you bear this child whose birth we celebrate, of course, every Christmas, you're to call him Jesus because he is a Savior. So little wonder that Zephaniah says to the people, in spite of all the message of judgment and gloom, Sing, O daughter of Zion, because there's a greater king that's come and is coming. And the second instruction was shout aloud, O Israel. 
Now, Presbyterians are not perhaps terribly prone to shouting aloud uh, uh, during worship, are we? Uh, I remember preaching uh, somewhere, and it was not a Presbyterian church, and I'd never spoken in this particular church before. And as I was preaching, there were people saying, Hallelujah! Amen! And I thought, wow, I'm doing really well, until I discovered that that's the way they did every Sunday uh, with their minister. But Zephaniah says, shout aloud, O Israel. And the, the image moves not just from a king who is the greatest king, but to a warrior king. And the imagery here is of a victorious warrior king whose people are shouting aloud in victory. He has had the victory over the enemies that they have had. And if I put that into a New Testament context, I think God would say to us through His Word, never be afraid of the enemy of God's people, the Christian church or the kingdom of God, the enemy that the Bible calls Satan. He is a defeated enemy. He is a vanquished foe. He is one who has had to give in to Jesus who conquered sin and conquered death on the cross. And so, Zephaniah is concerned about that spiritual experience of people, verses 16 and 17. That day they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang a limp. The Lord your God is with you, is mighty to save. Zephaniah said, there's no need to fear when you come to true faith in God. There's no need for your hands to hang limp saying, what can I do? There's no need to look at the world around us and the problems we have and say, oh, Sarah, Sarah, you know, can't do anything, fatalistic, hopeless kind of situation. No, says Zephaniah, you've got to strengthen those arms and shout aloud because our God is mighty to save. And if I'd been saying that in the church I referred to earlier, people would have shouted out, Amen. But there we are. Uh, isn't it true that we often experience powerlessness in our Christian lives Maybe we've compromised our faith some way and feel a failure. Or maybe we fail to find victory over sinful habits and attitudes, and we struggle for years and years with that. Maybe others belittle our faith and crush us with the things that they say. You know, sometimes I hear people criticizing the Christian church, and what grieves me is that very often their criticisms are justified, and our hands hang limp, and Zephaniah will have none of that. He says, shout aloud, O Israel, we have the victory in our God, and in the New Testament context, victory in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, weakened by debilitating illness, often imprisoned, shipwrecked, tortured for his faith, discriminated against. This Paul, who was physically a weak specimen of a human being, said this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What an amazing faith. I can cope with maybe it's bereavement, maybe it's low self-esteem, maybe it's something that somebody has done against you that's really destroyed you and hurt you. I can do all things. I can cope with all things, not in my strength, says Paul, but through Christ who strengthens me. And so Zephaniah begins with these instructions, sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. And he moves from any kind of legal or forensic sense of God's love and majesty to a very personal imagery. 
He's not just a king. He's not just a warrior. He is a king who loves his people, a king who wants relationship with his people. And you see, this God whom we worship, whose praise we sing, whose victory we shout about, is also Israel's and thus also our bridegroom as well. How can that be and what does it mean? Well, look at, if you have your Bible there, look at verses 17 or the second part of that verse because I I really want to focus on these words and I'll, I'll not get to the rest of the chapter because I want to finish with these words. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So there are three things there I want to draw your attention to. He will take great delight in you. This is the language of love. This is a bridegroom looking at his beautiful bride and his heart going out to her and all a flutter, or the the bride looking at the bridegroom and saying, I want to give my whole life and heart to him. And God looks at us with that look of love and sees us as people in whom he takes great delight. And you know, if a couple are getting married and they cannot take delight in each other, to be honest, they're better off not getting married. But God takes delight in you and in me. He thinks the world of you. He thinks so much of you that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you and for me. He takes delight in you. But you may say, I'm a rubbish Christian. I do so much wrong, and I think things I shouldn't think, and I do things I shouldn't do, and and I'm really a bit of a mess. The Bible says God takes great delight in you. How on earth can He do that? It is because we are made in His image. We are created beings, created for relationship with Him, created somehow mysteriously in His image, and He takes great delight in you. And it's not that you or I have anything in us that is worthy of His love or commends ourselves to Him, but it is because He has made us in His image, He looks at us in love and takes delight in us. Wow. And then Zephaniah says, He will quiet you with His love. What does that mean? The phrase might be better translated as he is silent in his love for you and for me. Uh, And what does that mean? Well, classic Hebrew commentary by Kiel and Delich, they write the following, which I hope will be on screen. The phrase denotes love deeply felt and absorbed in its object with thoughtfulness and admiration. I love that explanation of the phrase, he will quiet you with his love. Let me repeat it. The phrase denotes love deeply felt and absorbed in its object with thoughtfulness and admiration. It reminds me very much when our children came along. We've been blessed with four children. Uh, And uh, when our first child came along, we got him home from hospital uh, and we put him in his own little room. Uh, No monitors in those days. My wife was the monitor. Uh, I I thank the Lord for a wife who had a kind of radar that that woke with us a crying child, and I get up in the morning and say, that was a good night's sleep, and she'd say, well, you weren't pacing the boards at two o'clock in the morning, Uh, uh, but anyway, I remember the experience of going into the bedroom and looking at a child asleep, so innocent, so lovely, so at peace. 
and you didn't want to make noise because you didn't want to wake the child up and start them crying. And we just look at our child and our children as they came along, totally absorbed in this miracle of creation, totally absorbed with thoughtfulness about, Lord, what might they be in the future? How might they grow? What will we do as parents? And it's that same sense that God says He looks at us totally absorbed, lost in thoughtfulness over us, and full of love and admiration for us. It's an incredible, credible thing. God is absorbed in the object of His love. That's you and it's me. He looks upon us with thoughtfulness. He knows what we are and He knows what we're like. He's painfully aware of all our sins, all our failures, and still, still He loves us and is absorbed in thoughtfulness over us. Wow. God sees beyond the distortion that sin causes in our lives to the person He wants us to be and will by the power of His Holy Spirit make us be. He sees beyond that, and there's admiration in His eyes as He looks at you, a masterpiece of God's creation. Do you believe that? Do you? It's kind of mind-blowing. But the, the last thing in that second part of verse 17 is, He will rejoice over you with singing. Singing's always been very important to me, but I have to confess that I never composed a song about my wife. But what I did do, and this will, you, you'll probably think it's either very twee or McBride is a sentimental old fool, but whenever Barbara and I got engaged, she went off back to her nurse's home, and I went back to my uh, room in theological college where I was studying, uh, and I, I opened the sash window, and I put the stereo on, and this will show my age. Uh, some of you will remember Simon and Garfunkel, uh, a song by Art Garfunkel, I believe when I fall in love with you, it'll be forever. Oh, and that's sentimental. But I opened the window in my room, and I blasted the music out. I didn't care who hurt. McBride was in love, and I was going to tell the world. Now, I didn't compose a song, but God composes songs and rejoices over you with singing. Isn't that incredible? I understand that the most commonly spoken language in the world is not actually English, but Mandarin Chinese. 1.2 billion people speak Mandarin Chinese. I understand that there are approximately 6,500 languages in the world, and there are many languages that have died. But if we believe that God is God, and if we believe that God is supernatural, and if we believe that God has created all human beings, and God knows everything, then God is actually able to speak those six and a half thousand languages and many more besides that have been lost. So the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the Creator is not lost for making up words to sing about you and me. He's not short of a phrase or two. And Zephaniah says he will rejoice over you with singing. Not just sticking on a song on the iPhone or stereo or whatever we might have, but God will make up songs about you and rejoice over you with singing. I find that utterly, utterly incredible. And I think it's a lovely, lovely thing, like a parent singing 
a lullaby to the child he loves, like a lover singing a ballad to the object of his or her love, like a proud bridegroom extolling the virtues of his bride or the bride of the bridegroom. God rejoices over us with singing and composes and sings songs in heaven about you and about me, and I find that utterly, utterly, utterly amazing. And that's what I want to leave you with this morning, because there is a need to preach judgment for sin and God's condemnation of sinners. There's a need for that. And the need is that we live in a moral universe, and we need to understand that God punishes evil and rewards the righteous. If we didn't live in a moral universe, then everything would be up for grabs. But having understood that, and having understood that the living in that moral universe has caused God to send His Son, Jesus, to take our penalty, our punishment upon Himself, we need then to understand that the relationship that God calls us to is one of utter abandonment and love. And He looks upon you this morning and will quiet you with His love. He will gaze at you and He gaze with me with unadulterated thoughtfulness and adoration and love and consideration. And yes, I know that we're sinners, and God knows that too. But we have a mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, who expressed His love for us in the most extreme way possible as He died for us on the cross. And if you believe that God died for your sins on the cross, then you must also believe that He takes great delight in you, will quiet you in His love, and rejoice over you with singing. On a hot, warm day, thank God for good weather. Let's not complain about it being too warm. The hot day, let's praise God for that love. Let's pray together. Lord, what will we do as a result of what we've heard this morning. Perhaps we need to praise you afresh for the gift of your Son, as if on the cross were inscribed the letters, God is love. Perhaps we need to thank you afresh for that incredible love that the Scripture tells us is so absorbed in us that you take delight in us. Perhaps, Lord, our response will be that we need to meet you afresh and meet your love with our own, to recognize that we ought to be grateful that you have created a moral universe in which sin is punished and righteousness is rewarded, even if we don't even see that in our daily lives all the time. The day will come when you will return and every tongue will have to say, Jesus is Lord. So help us, Lord, to meet your love with our own and to walk each day in relationship with you by this Holy Spirit you've given to your people, not only to dwell within us, but to shine through us the love of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.